Well, it's good to be together. If, uh, if we haven't met, I'm Jack, one of the pastors here. And if you're visiting with us, it's a, a real delight to have you to worship together. And we're going to look in ending up a, a series that we started a couple weeks ago in the book of Titus. And so First and Second Timothy and Titus are kind of known as the pastoral epistles, just a fancy three letters. Uh, and uh, Paul wrote them to some pastors and leaders who were kind of establishing churches, and he's writing wisdom to them of how to establish those churches and how to grow and what they're to be about. And, and so if you have your uh, Bible, you can go there. If uh, you have the, the sermon app, you can kind of open up that and kind of follow along. I think uh, we have all that in there. So... Um, Titus chapter 3, we said these are three chapters that kind of have an inkling of, of what's being told and what's being expressed to, to Titus himself as he's kind of leading in the, the island of Crete and establishing this church. And in verse 8 of chapter 3, it kind of sums up the whole book. Here's what he says. This is a faithful saying. These things I want you to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works, should devote themselves to good works. That out of the 921 words that make up the whole book of Titus, it can really be boiled down to two. Do good. And in chapter one, we looked at this idea of do good within, meaning grow your godly character and the godliness that overflows into your life. Make, make the inner part of your life matter. Not just the external actions, but let it flow from an internal character that's following after God and choosing to, to put him first. In week two, David kind of looked at this idea of that you want to do good in relationships. And he unpacked this story of how we live in the story of Christ. And as we give ourselves more and more to that, it begins to impact our relationships of how we relate one to another. And in chapter three, it's this do good outwardly, meaning the scope of influence that you have sees it and use it to do godly good in the world around us. Paul's view of ministry is always long-term. It's always about how do you help people grow up in their faith. It, it, Paul was never content with just getting people to pray a prayer and say yes to Jesus, and they're going to go home to heaven one day when they die. It was always, always, always about helping people mature in their faith to become more and more like Jesus, to grow in their faith, to own that. And so your character matters more than your reputation. That's why you want to grow godly character. And so he focuses in on that. Here's what leaders are to be like, and here's what they're to grow within and how they live out this godliness. Here's how they're to live in the one another's of relationships and how it's to impact relationships and everything that we do and how we relate one to another. It's to have an overflow into and influence our relationships. And it's to have an inward or an outward impact into the people that we are connected to around and the influence that we have in, in chapter 3 as he kind of looks at that. So we're going to join Paul kind of in chapter 3, unpack a little bit of what, it, uh, what he's saying here and some action steps for us to take. So chapter 3 of Titus, he begins to kind of lay out, and again, Paul is instructing Titus, saying, look, as we are establishing this church, as you're trying to accomplish things, you're to, to work at this. He's all about this amazing transformation, and who else better to write this than Paul, who was Saul and persecuting the church, and yet God did this incredible transformation work within him. And he's saying, Titus, this is to be the reality of how people of faith live, constantly being transformed in how they live. So he starts off. Remind the believers, meaning remind the people who have said yes to Jesus, who are orienting their life around following after Jesus. You remind them, Titus. 
remind them to submit to the government and its officers. Wow, <laughs> let's just start right there, okay. Remind them to submit to the government, to its officers. They should be obedient, always ready to do what is good. They must not slander anyone, must avoid quarreling. Instead, they should be gentle and show true humility to one another, to everyone around them. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, meaning as people who are waiting for Christ to return. We all live under authority. Now, I don't know if Paul was writing this specifically to what was going on in Crete. I, I don't know if there was something happening in this little island and how the, the disloyalty or, or, or things that were kind of bubbling up underneath the surface, and maybe he's writing specifically to a specific instance or something that he's challenging here, but he's saying, look, we all live under authority, and you need to remind people to stress, to be obedient to the government around them, and, and maybe he's addressing a particular problem. Here's what I know. 2,000 years later, luckily, we have advanced beyond any political and faith tension in our day. It's still around, isn't it? And so maybe what Paul's writing here, what he writes in Romans 13, what Peter writes in 1 Peter 2 when he talks about this, maybe there's still credence to it. And a good reminder, because that's what Paul's saying, hey, Titus, remind remind them. This is how we live out a witness, too. And so you need to, to understand that. So Christians may have a different understanding uh, or different interpretation of obedience to government and what that means, but we can all agree that we're to live at peace with the state as long as the state allows us to live out our religious convictions. And so there is to be this tension that we have to manage and go through. The believers must ha be responsible citizens as well as responsible Christians in living out their faith. We learn elsewhere what Paul writes in Philippians, that we are actual citizens of heaven. That's our citizenship first and foremost, more so than just the United States where we happen to live right now. That we are actual citizens of heaven, that we are sojourners, we are strangers in this world. Just passing through is what Peter says. And so we're to live with that kind of concept in mind. We can be proud of our country of origin. And we are to be citizens of heaven first. And so just real plainly, can I just say this? Nationalism is never to rise above your allegiance to the kingdom of Christ. And so there is this challenge to call all of us to say, look, our allegiance to Christ first and foremost, that tempers and, and, and frames everything else we pursue. And so as you live that way, you tell them, Titus, as you live this out, then avoid quarreling and, and act with humility in life. You should be gentle in how you live out your faith. And I just wonder if maybe 2,000 years later, there's a little challenge here for us too in our day and age to say, hey, live gently, live with humility, live out your faith and be allegiance and have allegiance to Christ. Remind the believers, he says, always be ready to do what is good. There's that phrase again. Always be ready to do what is good. Once we too were foolish, he goes on, verse 3, we were disobedient. We were misled and became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Our lives were full of evil and envy, and we hated one another. And there was this hatred that boiled under the surface. And we look at that, and at first, 
we don't like it. Because here's the truth about all of us. More than likely, I bet this is true for you. We like to compare ourselves. And so we look at things and go, well, I'm better than so-and-so. Or I'm better than my neighbor. Or I'm better than that person, my coworker. I'm better than so-and-so, whoever that may be. And so we tend to compare ourselves. But can I just remind you who's writing this? This is Paul. And he's, he's writing this to the church. And what's fascinating is he uses the word we. Now, I don't know if you know much about Paul's faith. He was really good at it. Before he met Christ, he was really religious. Like, how many of you remember how many books are in the Old Testament? How many of you think you have an idea of how many books? Paul memorized them, could quote them to you. So he's pretty religious. And in that scope of things, Paul is writing and he includes himself. This is fascinating. He says, we used to be this way. Somewhere along the line, as Paul met Christ and Christ was beginning to transform his life, he actually lifted up the rug underneath all the religiosity of what he had given his whole life to and began to see some things, began to see his true humanity. And the struggle point, I think, for us sometimes is we don't like to see the true humanity of ourselves because we like to compare ourselves. Well, I'm better than so-and-so. Yeah, I may not be that, but I'm certainly not that. And so we live in this comparison contrariness and in this tension and limbo of that. Then it dawns that Paul is the one writing this. And he says, look, you know, Titus, I saw some passions and pleasures of which I was not proud. I saw hatred and envy, and I became aware, spiritually speaking, that I was a dead man just propping up with religious things. And that's the beginning of the seeking process. When we begin to, to lean into who, how God really sees us in the brokenness of our own soul, if we're actually honest enough to admit it. And in the leaning into that, we remember, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. Jesus came to make dead people alive. And the point of the gospel is that we were all dead in our own sin. We were all dead and separated from Christ, and yet he came to make us alive again. Verse 4 is what I want you to circle. If you have a Bible, I want you to take a pen and actually circle this word because I love this word. Anytime you see this word, and it's, it's the apostles speaking about who God is, it's the word but. Circle it. It's awesome. I love the big buts of the Bible. This is awesome. Here's what it says. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. This is how you used to be, Paul's saying. But when God, our Savior, revealed his kindness and love, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. It's his mercy that led the way. He washed us away, washed away our sins. He gave us a new birth and a new life through the Spirit. He generously poured out his Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And because of his grace, he made us right in his sight and gave us confidence that we could have eternal life. We used to be this way, Paul's saying. But, ooh-wee, glad that's there. But Jesus stepped in. God stepped in.
and it changed everything. And if we lean into that, we understand that verse 3 and 4, Paul's saying, look, you were foolish. We were disobedient. We were deceived. We were servants of lust and pleasure. We were living in malice. We were envious. We were hateful. But Jesus stepped in. And on your behalf and on my behalf, he changed things. And in spite of who you were, he announced through his son that you are loved and that I'm loved. And then I'm worthy and that you're worthy of having a relationship with him. That's why he pursues you. That's why he looks after a relationship with you. Then he begins to understand, but in this salvation, here's what we receive. We were lost, but he saves us. We were defiled, but he washes us clean. We were dead, but he makes a regeneration of our spirit. We were empty, but he fills us with his spirit. And so there's this constant understanding that everything we've received in salvation through Christ is because of what Jesus has done. That's the hope of the gospel. It's not based on your behavior. It's not trying to get you to do good things in order to receive. It's to live in this beautiful embrace that you are worthy and that you are loved. And because of that, God pursues a relationship with you. That Jesus came to make a way for you to experience God's love and mercy and grace through faith in him. Now, some of you, some of you have probably encountered people who are trying to get their way to heaven or have a right relationship with God based on their merit or based on how moral they are. And so we live going back to this comparison of, well, I'm, I'm, I do more good than that person. I'm more moral than so-and-so, and so maybe as I get to heaven, maybe the Lord will let me in, but here's the point. We're all broken, and we will wreck perfection if we're not made perfect, and you and I can't make ourselves perfect. And so the hope of the gospel, the hope of the story is that Jesus has saved us, and he has brought us in, done all the cleaning work, and regenerated our spirit so that we can have life with God, now on into eternity. And he is always at work. What is Paul always at work? Trying to help people grow into maturity of Christ, that they would be more and more like Jesus this year than they were last year. Always having this growth and steps forward, always next steps in that. A businessman told his story of a warehouse property that he was selling. The building was empty for months upon months. It needed massive repairs. Vandals had broken in and damaged the doors, smashed all the windows, scattered trash all over the property. And as he was taking a prospective buyer around, he kept apologizing for everything that was broken, saying, I'll bring it in, I'll restore all the structural stuff, I'll get people to clean it out. I just, I want you to know, I'll take care of it. And the businessman looked at him and said, look, look, I'm not trying to buy this building. I'm going to tear it down. I just want the site. And so for many of us, compared to the renovation that God has in mind for our life, our efforts to improve our own lives is like sweeping a warehouse that's meant for the, the demolition. And so it's this challenge that's called to say, look, we are to be people who allow Christ to make things new within us. That's the point of what Jesus has done. And so this whole series, we've been looking at this idea of, look, you want to do good. You want to do good within. You want to do good within the relationships. You want to do good within the scope of reach, of impact that you can have. But it's not about just doing good so that you look good for God. It's about how God has made you good. 
through your faith in Christ, and that has transformed and changed everything. And now, out of the overflow, I want to live this way. That's why verse 8 is, this is a trustworthy saying. I want you to insist on these teachings so that all who trust in God will devote themselves to doing good. These teachings are good and beneficial for everyone. This is the point of the gospel, that it's a greater story that we're invited into. The series takeaway was simply this, being good and doing good isn't what makes you right with God. But when you are made right with God, it always produces a life that seeks to do good. As you're made right with God, it always, seeks, always produces a life that will seek to now do good, to do good within, to do good within relationships around us, and to do good within the scope of influence that we can have around us all the time, every time. John Wesley has this quote. Some people acquit it to him, some people don't, but it's a great quote anyway. Do all the good you can by all the means you can in all the ways you can in all the places you can and all the times you can to all the people you can as long as ever you can. Do good. That sums up Titus. N.T. Wright talks about, uh, he's a modern theologian, a writer. He talks about us being active agents for God. Active agents for God and for his good in the world and the scope of influence that we have. That we are not just saved so that we can go to heaven someday. That is a great blessing and a great benefit. But we have been saved and now sent. And we live as a sent one to be an active agent for God and for his good in the world around us. You cannot truly follow Jesus and not live a life on mission. That it isn't just about you. It's about how God can leverage your life and my life. That when you and I said yes to Jesus, a lot of us said yes to him for the benefit for us, that Jesus would forgive my sins, that he would be my friend through all of life, and that he would take me to heaven when I die. And that is good, and that is a benefit. Chances are, when you came to Christ, it was about you and Jesus. Jesus would forgive your sins. He would heal your wounded heart. He will set you free from addiction. He would answer your deepest questions about life, and he would take you to heaven when it's over. And the gospel is true in that. It is about you and Jesus. But it is more than just that. It's not the whole of the gospel. In fact, the, the words of Richard Stearns, he runs World Vision. And he tells, if that's just your view of the gospel, then it has a hole in it. He gave up a CEO, CEO job of a, of a fortune company, and he said, look, I want to go, and he felt called in to be the leader of World Vision, and they go after serving the neediest of people in our world. And it's a struggle, but here's what he writes in his book. Being a Christian requires more than just having a personal and transforming relationship with God. It also entails a public and transforming relationship with the world. If your personal faith in Christ has no outward expression, then your faith has a hole in it. Because faith isn't just about me and Jesus. Faith is about me and Jesus and Jesus saying, now you are with me, now go before me. And, and go with me into the world to have a, an impact, to do godly good in the world around us. Jesus said, follow me. And he sent his followers. You're to be an active agent for God and for his good in this world around you. So how do you do that? Isn't that the, the million-dollar question? 
God, how do I do that? Uh, okay, I'm, I'm Jack. I, I live in Tucson. You know, I, I'm middle age. Like, how, how do I live this out in my cultural context? I think that's the question we all wrestle with. Can I just suggest to us that maybe it's not necessarily having a plan of how you do that, but to walk steadily and closely and in proximity with the one who has the plan for how that works out. That you and I would stay in proximity to Jesus, and as we follow him, we would say, Jesus, would you use my life to do good? One of the prayers I've had over my kids uh, for as far back as I can remember is praying with them as they go to sleep and always kind of throwing in this tag at the end. I'm not sure why I started it, but I just started praying for my family. That, God, would you use our family to make a difference in the world for you? Would you just leverage our lives? And I don't know how all that plays out and what that's going to look like tomorrow, but the best I know how, I want to be willingly committed to that. Would you leverage our lives for your good, to live intentionally? So here's what I would challenge you and challenge myself again with. Live alert to God-ordained interruptions. Why? Well, Ephesians 2.10, Paul writes, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. See how this fits together with Titus? We're God's workmanship. That word there, workmanship in Greek, is literally this masterpiece, meaning there's only one of you. There's not another masterpiece that's like you. There's only one of you. That's why you're a masterpiece that God has created, and he is doing a work. He is transforming you because of your faith in Christ, and he has got good works which he is prepared in advance for you to do and for me to do. And we're to step into those in partnership with him. And so maybe it's just that we begin to live alert to the God-ordained interruptions in our life. Isn't it fascinating when you study the life of Jesus? that for the most part, outside of traveling to different cities, we don't know Jesus' agenda. Did you ever stop to think about that? Most leaders of, of companies or businesses have an agenda meeting all the time. Jesus has a, a goal of, hey, we're going to go from this city to this city. We see that. But we don't have spelled out in the Gospels an agenda. Like Jesus didn't wake up at 6 a.m. and say, okay, here's my agenda, and here's what I'm going to go do. He just went. And as he went, it's amazing what ministry happened. It's amazing what ministry unfolded in the midst of as he went. And as you and I are sent ones, we're to be active agents for him. We're sent ones into the world. What if we just lived that way a little bit more? If we just said, hey, God, I have an agenda, I have some things I need to accomplish today, but as I go, would you help me to live alert to the God-ordained interruptions? Because most of Jesus' ministry, what you see in the gospel accounts, happened by interruption. It's Jesus traveling to heal someone, and a sick woman in the crowd comes up and touches the edge of his cloak, and he stops. He's on the way to a leader's house. There's an agenda. There's a, a vibrancy. There's a, a kind of a, an urgency to what he's about. And Jesus is the one who stops and says, who's touched me? 
And the disciples are kind of beside themselves, like everyone's touching you, like we're all crowded in here trying to move to what we're supposed to do. Why are you stopping? We need to go this way. And Jesus said, no, no, no. Someone's here. And they've been healed physically. But they need to be healed emotionally, reinstated back into community life. And so he stops and he seeks her out and she and him have an interaction and ministry happens and her life has changed. Jesus, everywhere he went, there was these divine interruptions that seemed to happen and he sees them. We live in a culture, and I am guilty of this, we don't like interruptions, do we? I don't think I'm alone. Because we typically wake up and have an agenda. Here's what I need to accomplish. Here's where I need to be. And, here, and I'm not saying those things are wrong. I'm just wondering. Do we miss some of the God-ordained interruptions, the opportunities to do good works, which he's prepared in advance for us to do, because we're on the way to number next? And so what if we took the next month as we make our way to Christmas, and we all kind of put it on our radar screen to say, God, here's 100 plus people right here. Would you just help us to be alert to the God-ordained interruptions in our day? And would you use this small little army to do good works, which you've already prepared in advance, like you're already orchestrating how we're gonna bump into people, how you're gonna cross paths with people. Would you allow us to be the privilege of partnering with you, that we would be open and alert to that, to live alert to those things. St. Augustine of Hippo, fourth century, here's what he writes. Since you cannot do good to all, I mean, you can't fix everything, you can't do good to all things, you are to pay special regard to those who by the accidents of time or place or circumstance are brought closer into connection with you. What if we just lived more alert to the God-ordained interruptions of life and ask in those moments, God, is there something here that I can do to partner with your spirit to do good, to just bless someone, to pray for them, to just encourage somebody, to, to meet a need that I can meet, to step into a moment, to live that way. In chapter 3, here's what we see. Verse 2, be ready to do good work. Verse 8, be careful to devote themselves to doing good work. Verse 14, that people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. Do you hear a rhythm here that Paul is trying to articulate, that the Spirit is saying to his church, be alert, step into moments to do godly good in the world, in the scope of influence that you have. Step into those moments and do good. Paul did not make this an aspect of discipleship that's optional. You won't read that in here. This, it isn't, doesn't say, if you feel like it, do good. If it's Wednesday, you get a pass on doing good. That's not there. If you're an introvert, you don't have to do good. No, 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 that's not there. Everyone, everyone who has said yes to Jesus Commit your life to doing good. Verse 14 again. Our people must learn to do good by meeting the urgent needs of others. Then they will not be unproductive. 
they will commit their lives to doing good. So here's another simple way. So living alert to the God-ordained interruptions. What if you just spent the next 25 days as we make our way to Christmas? Today's December 1st, right? So 25 days. We all commit together to say, God, I want to live alert to the God-ordained interruptions happening around me, and I want to step into those moments to do good. Would you show me how to do that? Would you help me be alert to that? And secondly, he says this idea of do good, verse 14. You must learn to do good by meeting the urgent needs of others. We have an opportunity. Uh, We have a a couple families in our church that uh, could really use some help. We have people all the time in our community who reach out to the church and could really use some help. And so as pastors, as leaders, we thought going into this Christmas season, we'd like to open up Hope Mob again and invite us all to say, let's contribute to this. So above and beyond tithes and gifts to the church and the mission of Element City Church, maybe you would pray about it and find it in your heart to say, look, I want to give toward this Hope Mob initiative. So again, in the giving link, it's, it's labeled Hope Mob. You can give directly to that. And that is going to kind of fill up a benevolence fund that we would like to, to kind of fill up the best we can going into this Christmas season that could help a few families here in our church that we know about, maybe some other stories that we have yet to learn about, and to go into 2020 with a way that says, hey, we have an opportunity, we have a fund now, that when someone as a need arises, we can say, hey, we can meet that need. And if we all are in that together, then as a mob, we can do more than you can do individually. And so that's the simple request. Live alert to the God-ordained opportunities, the interruptions in your day. Meet those. Step into them. And maybe all together this Christmas season, let's come together and say as a hope mob, we want to be able to step into people's lives and to do good in a practical, tangible way and to help them. And so, Father, as we uh, wrap up the series in Titus, as we kind of look at this idea of what Paul is driving home 2,000 years ago to Titus on this little island establishing the church, the whole theme rings throughout to do good, to do good within, that we would grow godly character, that we would help ourselves to become more and more like you, that we'd be a people that would do good in relationships around us, that we'd be people who would live alert to do good in the scope of influence we can have. We thank you, Jesus, that you're the one who stepped up and stepped into our story to do good for us. And so as we take communion, we remember that it's your life, your death, your resurrection that paved a way for us to have a right relationship with you. And so as we take communion, as we sing this final song, God, would you speak to our hearts? Would you move us to to what, what it might be this week to live alert, to step into those moments, those interruptions? We wouldn't be frustrated by them, but we would see them as an invitation to say yes to you and to do good on your behalf. Would you help us as a whole church to maybe do some good for the people that are within this church, people within this community, that we can meet needs and on behalf of you say to them, we want to do good for you because God is for you. He loves you. So would you move us 
you inspire us? Would you nudge us in the ways that we need? Would you speak to us now as we worship you in communion and in song?